Ian Rankin is here. The name of the book, A Heart Full of Headstones. It's another John Rebus mystery thriller. Nice to see you again. Good to be back. Without starting by overflattering, but maybe I am. I, you just keep on coming up with new books that are as rich as the previous one, in spite of perhaps the, the challenges of keeping a character like this going. I mean, like some other authors I follow, you've allowed John Rebus to age. So he's, he's kind of getting up there. How old is he? Uh, well, that's a very good question, and I try not to think about it too much. I mean, in in real world, in the real world, he's probably seventy. No, he's probably in his seventies. But uh, there was five years when I didn't write about him. When I finished, I thought I'd finished writing the books back at the end of Exit Music, and so those five years I've chalked off. So, in my head, he's about sixty-eight. He's certainly too old to be chasing suspects. And I mentioned the other writers who, uh, John, uh, Michael Connolly is one of them. Uh, unfortunately, Peter Robinson has passed away. But both of them have more or less said, I'm not going to go back in time and do sort of a when this person was young. Are you ever going to go back in time? Until recently, I would have said definitely not because I'm not a hist- I don't write historical novels. But um, during lockdown, during COVID, I was given the task of finishing a book that had been started by a huge hero of mine, a Scottish writer called William McIlvanny, and he had a series with oh, three, three books featuring a detective called Laidlaw. And on his death, he'd left one incomplete, notes, basically, for, a, for an, another book. And his widow asked me to finish it. And I took it on, and it was set in Glasgow 1972. And it was so refreshing to be writing about a time when you didn't have to factor in cell phones, CCTV, computers, laptops, camera. Everybody's got a camera phone. Everybody's phone can be found and tracked and everything else. DNA analysis of the crime scene, all the all the changes that have taken place in the tech. It was just good, old-fashioned, solid policing. And so I thought, eh, maybe I could do that with Rebus one day. For those who aren't familiar with the series, it's hard to think there is anyone who is not uh, aware of the series, but can you give us the quick character study on John Rebus? Well, he's he's very influenced by um, the American crime novel, I guess. He's much more like a private detective than he is a, a, a cop. Um, uh, he's, he's gruff, he's irascible, he's a loner. He probably, until recently, when his health became an issue, smoked and drank too much. But he's a detective to his very bones. It's the one thing he lives for is to find answers to questions. If you give him a question or a quest or a task, he will take it on and work his utmost to get a solution to it. And in that way, he's a little bit like the novelist. The novelist is using the novel and the characters therein to try and find the answers to big questions that are bugging them about the way the world works, the way the world is, the way human nature is. And crime fiction, when you boil it down to a very to an essence, it's one question, which is why do we human beings keep doing terrible things? Although some of the character traits you named, and I realize usually a character like this is an avatar for the novelist, but in your case, you don't strike me as impatient, irascible, um, loner. Oh, he's my Mr. Hyde. Okay. He, he allows me to be Dr. Jekyll. Um, he's got the kind of he's he's got those bits of my personality that that don't always see the light of day. I can channel them to him. I mean, you know, if I get angry or upset about anything, if somebody if somebody annoys me in any way, I can just bump them off in my books. It's incredibly therapeutic and cathartic. So Rebus during the years has saved me an absolute fortune in therapists' bills. <laughs> okay. You mentioned taking a break from Rebus, and I understand you're taking a break from writing itself now. For how long? 
Well, my wife uh, got a bit annoyed with me because during COVID, I was writing more than ever, more than ever. Um, and we'd had plans to go travelling. And of course, COVID put, the, put an end to that. And so she said, look, next year, you don't have to write a book. I need to deliver one more book in my contract, but that's not until the year after next. So she said, why don't we take next year off? She said, just put the do not disturb sign up on your on your Twitter feed or your 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 emails and everything else don't agree to any projects don't do any festivals don't do any tours and let's go traveling well we still can well we've still got the use of our limbs and our brains so starting January the 1st that's me do you not worry about uh, some crazed fan kidnapping you imprisoning you and smashing your knee and making you write a book you know, I mean, there are other authors that could happen to before. I can imagine that happening to George R. R. Martin or somebody before, you know, Diana Gabaldon before it happens to me and J.K. Rowling. Bring back Harry Potter. No, I think I'm pretty low down that list. Fans are patient. I mean, they've, they've got used to waiting two years for a new Rebus book. I think they'll wait two years for the next one. It's an interesting dynamic. I mean, the book I was describing is, uh, of course, Misery by Stephen King. <laughs> and numerous books that he has written are very much about the relationship between the author and the fan. Uh, and do you reflect on that at all? I think most of your fan interactions are extraordinarily positive. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't do much on social media. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that, but I do use Twitter, but who knows for how much longer. And that's always been very positive. Nobody sort of rushes to tell me how terrible my books are or how, how much they have not enjoyed the latest one. So it's just a way of keeping in touch with fans all over the world and letting them know what might be coming next. I've not had any... Thanks for mentioning it. It's put it in my head now, the idea I might have some crazy fans out there who are going to sort of want to you know, <laughs> do, do me down in some way because I'm not writing more books about Rebus. Uh, yeah, you've, you know what? Once you put these things in my head, they never, they never leave. Maybe that'll give me a plot for a future book. This one starts, uh, we're talking with Ian Rankin about his new novel, A Heart Full of Headstones. It uh, starts with a bang because Rebus, our lead character, is in the dock. And if I remember from when I started, he actually observes he's probably going to end up being convicted. Yeah, well, uh, we, leave the, we leave the reader hanging for a while on that one. But yes, he's in the dock and it's the High Court in Edinburgh. So he's done something pretty serious. We don't know what. And then we flash back to find out what events led up to this. And it's a story of corrupt cops and, and, and cops who think they can get away with stuff. They're very much predicated on real cases that have happened recently in the UK, mostly in the Metropolitan Police in London, but not just there, uh, of, 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 kind of you know, cops gone bad, but also a kind of corruption at the heart of the system. And the question I'm asking is, what kind of cops do we want? What kind of cops do we deserve? What kind of cops do we get in the 21st century? And Rebus in the past has broken rules. He's broken plenty of them. He has bent the, the, the law to his own making. And I just thought maybe Nemesis is coming for him. So we start with him in the dock. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, obviously, that kind of gray zone in policing and criminality is going to be the, the tectonic plate of a book like this. But I wonder... The dynamic I've discovered in a lot of books is everybody hates a bad cop, but cops hate the guys who investigate bad cops more than they hate the bad cop. Yeah, and I, I disagree with you slightly on that. I mean, I think maverick cops, people like, they don't like the goody two-shoes cops. I remember, I don't know if you got it here, there was a TV show the BBC did years ago called Life on Mars, where a, a cop in the present day suddenly wakes up in the 1970s as a detective. And so he's kind of politically correct, touchy-feely, inside with his feminine side, all the rest of it. And here he is in a, a police station full of boorish, macho, sexist cops with a bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer who are happy to slap around the suspects in the interview room. Now, I think we were supposed to side with the touchy-feely modern cop. No, 
the the fans of the series all went for Gene Hunt, who was the unreconstructed bad cop, the maverick cop. And I think people like that about Rebus. They like it that he lives on the edge, that he doesn't follow the rules, that he sometimes does terrible things or, or does bad things for the right reasons, he would say to get a conviction, to get the right person arrested. He's going to do something. He's going to bend the rules somehow. But as you say, when it comes to actually investigating those cops, the whiter than white cops like Malcolm Fox is another character in my series. I mean, people don't like him because he's he's, he's a boring pen pusher. He's, a, he's an office jockey. You know, he's a desk jockey. He's not a man of action. And people do like a, a character who's who's got action within them. Have I broken any protocol in failing to introduce you as Sir Ian Rankin? Uh, I don't know. We're in Canada, so who knows? Um, you know what? Ben Kingsley insists it, upon it. Oh, does he? Well, the only thing that's got me so far, The Knighthood, which came with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Honours, which is why partly why I accepted it. Uh, the only thing that's got me so far is a lot of a lot of teasing at the pub that I drink in in Edinburgh where they say, hey, where's your horse? Um, <laughs> and I say, well, it's hard to find a horse around these parts at the moment. Yeah, so there. You, but I look back at writers who'd been knighted, Scottish writers who'd been knighted, and they were few and far between. Well, is it a problem to be a Scotsman and to accept a knighthood? Oh, you know what? I mean, you know, some people in Scotland want an independent country and they want a republic, and some people in Scotland want to stick with the UK and 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 have have, have a monarchy. Um, no, it's not. I mean, a few people have, have rolled their eyes a little bit at me accepting it, but I thought, hey, if it's good enough. For Arthur Conan Doyle, another Edinburgh writer of, of my acquaintance as a reader, is good enough for me. And were you united personally by the Queen? It's not happened yet because, oh, okay. um, yeah, no, it was supposed to, it was going to happen in January this coming year, but I'm going to be on vacation, I'm going to be away, so uh, I think it's going to be March and it'll probably be Charles in London. But no, I was sad that it wasn't the Queen because she was actually in Edinburgh in August and I thought, well, this would be the chance for it to happen, but um, she was obviously a little bit busy doing other things. I've got to say that I've got a lot of time for Camilla. She is a great reader. She's a big fan of my books, so of course I would have time for her. She has a book club that she runs and she's very interested in literature programs and she also wrote me a very nice letter when I got the knighthood so nice yeah and how much I mean I know how much but in your own words does the city of Edinburgh itself play a character in your work I mean it just it sounds I'm sure the life of a writer is tough but I always have these imaginings of you dashing off a couple of pages and then going off to the pub hanging out with JK Rowling and it's a beautiful city it's an historic city it's a I, so it is a city that's full of its own character yeah, it is. And it's a city of writers and a city of readers. I mean, when you arrive in Edinburgh, often you arrive by train at Waverley Station, named after one of Sir Walter Scott's novels. You walk up the, the slope from the train station and you're actually there in front of the Scott Monument, named after Sir Walter Scott. As you walk around the city, you can see traces of Robert Louis Stevenson and J.K. Rowling. There'll be Harry Potter tours going on here, there and everywhere. Train spotting, of course, uh, paints a different picture of the city. Right now, we've got Kate Atkinson lives in Edinburgh. Alexander McCall Smith lives in Edinburgh. Joe Rowling, of course, lives in Edinburgh. It's just an extraordinary, rich city that, that seems to inspire a lot of people. And we all have our different versions of it in our books and our stories. So the Edinburgh that I write about is not quite Irvine Welsh's Edinburgh, and it's not quite Alexander McCall Smith's Edinburgh or Kate Atkinson's Edinburgh. And it seems able to contain these multitudes, these different versions of itself. And I think it's an absolutely fascinating city that also has social problems. It's got enough problems for me to keep writing crime fiction set there. 
Your range of interests seems extraordinary. I mean, you've done documentaries about the, basically the meaning of life. You're a musician. You set out to actually get a PhD at one time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you didn't set out to write the Rebus novels. You were on another course, but you ended up on that track. But it seems like you're an extraordinarily curious person, which is probably the core of your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always used writing. Ever since I was a little kid, I would sit in my bedroom and I would write poems and stories and song lyrics and stuff. And I was trying to make sense of the world. I was using words to try and make sense of the world, to try and explore the world. And I'm still on that trajectory. I'm still trying to make sense of this crazy place we live in for the short span of time that we're here. And I know that novels give a shape to something that seems very amorphous to us, that we, life sometimes just flies at us. When we sit down to read a novel, time slows, time almost stops, and we're in this, this world that makes sense. And especially in the crime novel where truth and justice usually come good at the end, it's a pleasure to actually have a, to live in a world that makes sense as opposed to the chaotic world we actually live in. Um, and at the same time, be asked big questions about morality and human nature and... Um, and why the world is the way it is. And, uh, and, and at the same time, authors get to be childlike. We are children who are sitting in our bedrooms scribbling poems to girls we can't talk to in the playground. I'm, I've never, I've never <laughs> escaped that. And getting paid that. for it. But getting paid for it and getting paid well for it eventually, yeah. Um, but, you know, just using your imagination. And I think it's a sadness to me these days that young people... I go to schools a fair amount, and young people are losing that sense of imagination. They they get stuff fed to them all the time by screens and they're not sitting bored in their bedroom just scribbling things down. And I try to say to them, look, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun if you do it and you get to play God and who doesn't want to get to play God? Thank you very much. Thank you.